Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to Taste Radio Insider. I'm Ray Latif, the editor and producer of Taste Radio, and you're listening to episode 74 of the podcast. I'm with my BevNet and Nosh colleagues, John Craven, Mike Schneider, and Melissa Traverse, and we're recording from the Taste Radio studio at BevNet headquarters in Watertown, Mass. In this episode, we're joined by the founders of Sound Sparkling Tea, Tommy Kelly and Salim Nijar. Just a reminder, if you like what you hear on Taste Radio, please share the podcast with friends and colleagues. And of course, we'd love it if you could review us on the Apple Podcasts app or your listening platform of choice. Welcome back, John. Welcome back, Mike. And welcome back, Cotter. Anybody watch Welcome Back, Cotter from back in the day? Oh! oh. Yeah? Oh! Who are you? Horshack. Horshack, yeah. yeah. Vinny Barbarino. Did I pronounce yeah. that correctly? Is it Barbarino? Vinny Barbarino. Barbarino. Played by John right. Landis. Oh, no, wait. John Travolta. Sorry. Wasn't it you, John, that said that uh, John Landis looked like, with his hair, looks like um, Vince Vega from uh, from Pulp Fiction? That was me. That was you, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Landis. He wears that like a badge of honor, though. That's As his, he should. That's yeah. his uh, profile photo in Slack, right? Yes. It is. Yeah. Yes, it is. I think oh, it's, it's, it's quite a compliment. I think so. You know. Okay. <laughs> Melissa, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? Excited. Excited for next week. Excited for Expo West. Kind of. Maybe. Sort of. Yeah, we're all working on it, right? Yeah. We're all working on getting amped up. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're better prepared than I have. I'm, I feel better prepared than I have been in the past. How so? I th- we have a ton of interviews lined up at yes, the event. we do. Ray has a really tight plan that goes in 15-minute increments. It <laughs> has them going from one end of the convention center to the other. Bring your running shoes. Totally kidding. That's like the worst thing you can do. I'm not <laughs> going to do that. Don't make appointments. People have asked me, they're like, oh, can we meet up at the show? I'm like, just, I'll be in the press room recording a lot of interviews, especially on Thursday. So That's good. It's almost like you have a booth. It is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I like the, that. The press room or the New Hope Network Lounge, where I also record some of these interviews as well. A lot of brands preparing as well seen uh, some you know things coming through on uh on nosh and bevnet brands are preparing mm-hmm. they are building buzz they are also getting ready nora snacks belgian boys from the ground up to name a few maya kamal everybody is getting ready yep exciting stuff for sure we, we should get into some tips for expo west and how to prepare for the event but let's hold off on that just for now because i know People missed John and Mike last week. So sad. Uh, they were out of the office, getting some rest in prior to, you know, the big funny, show I got in a lot Anaheim. of feedback that that was the best episode ever. I, uh, it was a pretty good one. <laughs> Absence I, I makes the bad. heart grow fonder. <laughs> John, you were in San Diego and, and parts of the West Coast. You were in Las Vegas at one point, too? Yeah. What were we doing in Vegas? That doesn't seem like the place you'd go. No, it it's not. I, I mean, if I'm being honest, I was literally just going there to get a cheaper flight home and uh, to drive through the desert instead of driving to L.A. So I took a five-hour drive with no traffic to avoid a two-hour drive with traffic. I saw a pic of the Bellagio on your Instagram, though. Yeah, yeah. I think I spent a full, jeez, uh, what was I there for? Maybe 12 hours. Yeah, I think okay. it was there for 12 I, I want to know what... I didn't beverages. Sorry to anyone who lives in Las Vegas. <laughs> I want to know what beverages John Craven brings to the desert after a five-hour car ride through Ooh, the desert. Uh, water. <laughs> uh, you saw a lot of uh, beverage entrepreneurs and food entrepreneurs at the meetup in San Diego, which was held last Monday. Uh, how'd that go? Looked, yeah, like that, it looked like it was amazing. Yeah, that was uh, a really fun way to both, you know, show off our, our new office out there and get some time to have some pizza and beer and, you know, try a lot of product samples. But I think uh, we had a little over 100 people show up for it, which was, you know, great for a 
a Monday uh, evening that's also a holiday. But yeah, lots of, uh, definitely lots of excitement around Expo West at that as well. And uh, yeah, just good to connect with people who, I don't know, I feel like I'll probably, you know, not get a chance to talk to everyone that I want to in Anaheim. So yeah, well, let's do it again soon. Uh, Mike, did you talk to a few food and beverage entrepreneurs when you were in London town? Yeah, I only went to London. I didn't get to go to the desert. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, met up with uh, a bunch of food and beverage entrepreneurs, uh, notably Adam Vanna from Jar Kombucha gave me a tour of his uh, factory, Chill, I dude. guess you'd call it. <laughs> Interview was, with uh, with Adam in episode, uh, I think it was 11 of Taste Radio Insider. Whew. Good stuff. He's a veteran of uh, Taste Radio Insider. The, I mean, this place was was pretty extraordinary. They're very transparent about everything that they do. I mean, he's stirring tea with a paddle. They've, they've got some uh, pretty interesting uh, brewing methods, which is not really the classic, you know, mason jar method with a SCOBY. They actually have like a starter fluid that they use. And uh, the SCOBY comes later, but it tastes legit. I also met up with Tommy Ben from Pippin Nut. He's heading up the peanut butter cup operation and uh, hooked us up with some peanut butter cups. Pip and Nut. Pippin Nut, okay. a, uh, a nut butter company out of UK with uh, fantastic nut butters. Nice. Did you get to try any of the new Grillo's products that they brought in last week? I know you guys were out of the office, but... Yep. So Travis and Eddie stopped by last week. Travis, the founder, and Eddie, who is jack of all trades, from what I understand. At exactly Grillo's. right. Grillo is yep. a maker of refrigerated pickles, premium pickles, that is. Uh, we actually featured Travis on uh, episode 175 of Taste Radio. Great conversation. One of our most popular episodes, actually, if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, please do. Uh, Travis is quite the character, um, and he's made quite some interesting products. Uh, on the table, we have... Two pickle salsas, aptly named Pickle <laughs> Pickle. <laughs> they also have a sweet one that's not on the table as well. Okay. Uh, John Craven, you just took a spoonful of that. I just said John Craven again. Darn it. What John, the? you just took a spoonful of those, of uh, the Pickle de Gallo. How was it? It's good, Ray. It's good. It's good. Okay. Um, I tried some yesterday as well. It's quite, I, I, I like it. I mean, it's basically like pickle relish. Mm -hmm. Okay. Premium pickle relish because you were saying premium a lot. Okay. I did say premium a number of times. They were um, talking about how they were positioning this as a salsa instead of a relish because the use cases for relish are more limited. So the number of times that you're going to put relish on a sandwich or a hot dog are far fewer than perhaps scooping it up with a chip. But I think it's delicious. I haven't tried it yet. I'm going to have to dip in there at some point. I did get to try the new beverages from Grillo's. They have a new two-scoop line of vinegar drinks that are made mm -hmm. with cold-pressed cucumbers and are promoted for their recovery benefits. Yes. Those are being positioned as sports recovery drinks, and they have electrolytes in them. So there is a lemon and then there's a pickle. They were talking about how they use fresh-pressed cucumbers. So it's not just a bottle of brine, but they use fresh-pressed cucumbers. And then it has the electrolytes that you might be looking for in another sports drink as a way to recover. So have you tasted this? I have tasted it. It does taste like pickle juice. Did you taste it? Uh, yeah, I Did had a very, really? very small amount of Was it. Was it like yeah. the veggie kefir? Uh, GT's uh, yeah, veggie it's kefir? It's actually a lighter flavor than you might expect. If you've had the farmhouse cultures dill shots, it's less intense than that. It's something that you could drink more of. I played football last night. I should have tried this. You I mean, have. I, I definitely need pickle recovery after my next match. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're not the first brand to promote pickle juice as a recovery drink um you know we've seen this before but it's interesting how many people i 
put a video of the beverages on my Instagram and it was amazing to see how many people DM'd me asking about those products. So there seems to be some interest for one reason or another. I don't know if it's just sort of a novelty thing at this point, if they're really interested in, you know, a pickle juice well, beverage. The, the big swig pickle evoked quite a response as well. Like people either loved it or they're like, what? But big I mean, swig big is a maker swig of, is a maker of spark, seltzer. Sparkling yeah. waters and they had a pickle flavor. Right. Yeah. They have I don't know if that had any functional benefit to it though, did it? Uh, just awesomeness. It just makes you feel <laughs> <laughs> like you just drank a pickle. <laughs> Yum. They, they've tried so many things in the past. So they tried pickled tomatillos, pickled grapes, pickled beets. So their brand that I think really likes to have fun and tries a lot of different things. So it'll be interesting to see how the um, beverages land. Travis, if you're listening, mellow. All right. He'll, he'll know what that means. <laughs> also in the office, Nairi Bakarian Mac from Alta Goods oh, popped into the office. Alta is, a brand, so <laughs> Alta is a brand of CBD-infused tahini bites. They are amazingly tasty. Mm -hmm. uh, John, have you tasted one? I don't know if you... I have not. You should. These are amazing, and they have CBD in them, yep. both of which are right That's up your alley. That's all I care about, CBD. Exactly. Calm yeah. me right down. The, the CBD was... Very effective. <laughs> so, Mike would know. <laughs> what does that even mean for you, Mike? For me? I was I was feeling no pain. Totally I was chilled very out. Very chilled out. Nairi, her day job is as a product safety scientist. So she works to reduce human exposure to chemicals and cosmetics. So she's taken that expertise and she's applying it to the CBD industry where things are pretty largely unregulated. So she does batch testing on everything, publishes the results on her website, and she's taking that very seriously. I could tell as I was tasting the Alta bars and I was tasting each of them and maybe had more than a bar and a half. I think I probably had two bars total. She was like, oh, I'm curious about how that's going to affect you. Mike can also attest to the uh, CBD, the quality of the CBD in Alta. I, I like the quality of the CBD in the Alta, yes. I just <laughs> like the quality of the product itself. I mean, it just tastes incredible. It does. And that we was talked, part of it. I couldn't stop eating it. So well, we I talked to Nairi about whether or not she would sell the product without CBD. And she was pretty hesitant. She's had people ask her that before because, again, they're really delicious. And the price point with CBD is about four ninety nine for a small square and, you know, would be significantly less without the CBD. But, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to market a snack bar in today's market that doesn't have a functional benefit, especially if you are a small company, right? For me, this is a bar where if you wanted to try CBD, you might want to try this because it was a pretty good representation of what I think CBD is supposed to feel like. <laughs> again, Mike can attest <laughs> yes, to the again. quality For of the, the CBD time. and all the good. weird. <laughs> what happened to you, man? It's good. Uh, when I walked into the studio, I swear it smelled like a delicious popcorn factory. And what we have on the table are some products from a brand called Popped Artisan Popcorn, which is based out of Tucson, Arizona. Uh, these are incredibly beautifully packaged. Each one of them is 2.4 ounces. How would you describe these bags? Sort of tall? Tall uh, coffee. Looks like a yeah. coffee bean. Tall bag. coffee bags. Yeah. yeah, there you go. I spoke with Diana last week. So um, right now, the popped artisan popcorn is mostly in places like they have vineyards, the Ritz-Carlton carries it, bars. So they're looking to branch out into retail. And one of their main differentiators is that they do all of their own production, which is not which is not so common these days. And their flavor lineup is 
pretty special. So we have the lemon poppy seed over there. They have a churro flavor, a prickly pear caramel. So they're doing some wild stuff with flavors. Exciting. They definitely are doing some wild stuff with flavors. You guys the, have been munching on the lemon poppy seed for mm -hmm. a bit. It's tasty. I have um, mixed feelings about the packaging. Because again, we both thought it was coffee. You see it in the product room and just walk right by. It's like, oh, we got another coffee. Oh, it's not a coffee. Oh, it's a popcorn. Interesting. So it pulls you in if you like coffee and hopefully you like popcorn once you find out that it's popcorn. You try to make mm -hmm. a cortado out of this by accident? <laughs> <laughs> I would drink Later. that. <laughs> Probably something you'd do. Perhaps we could pair the popcorn with some Liars, which is an Australian-based brand of non-alcoholic spirits. They launched in the U.S. in December. Was UK I, I don't know if it's Liars. I don't think they want it, you to call it Liars. It, it is Liars. <laughs> No, it is because it's named after you the liar. It's named after the liar bird. You're lying about this. It's which is an Australian bird known for its ability to mimic any sound. I was pretty impressed by liars, uh, even if you're not impressed by the name, Mike. Oh, yeah, I was definitely impressed by the product. So they make non-alcoholic representations of a whole bunch of different spirits like whiskey, gin, even absinthe. Uh, have you tried the absinthe, John? I've tried the gin. The gin is really good. Did not know we had an absinthe. Did they send us one? Or maybe they didn't. Maybe they sent us a like red apertivo, that white, the or Rosa. sorry, dry apertivo, the dry, like the London dry gin one. And then this, uh, which I assume a white cane spirits, a white rum. Out of the brands that come to the office, you know, the non-alcoholic brands that we've seen, and we've seen quite a few. Liars is pretty impressive. They, they make a really Stop good product. Stop calling them liars. Uh. <laughs> if one wanted to mix non-alcoholic spirits with alcohol, how would that turn out? Uh, you can definitely do that. There are definitely cocktails and bars out there that use things like seed lip just to lower the proof of a cocktail. I think that's one of those things that I'd probably defer to uh, a professional rather than try that at home, but... I find that they mix really well with uh, kombucha. I've been mixing them with GT's original and uh, making mm -hmm. some, you know, afternoon cocktails? cocktail. I, don't, I, I think they're cocktails. Well, they probably mix well with a product I'm holding in my hand, which is Ooh. from the makers of Withco Cocktails, which is a Nashville-based company which makes concentrated cocktails. Uh, this is a old-fashioned variety. It's a 16-ounce glass bottle, beautiful packaging uh, Withco uses. Fresh premium ingredients. The ingredients here are pure cane sugar, water, aromatic bitters, cinnamon, orange peel, and raw vanilla. As I mentioned, the packaging is really striking. Mm -hmm. It's a full wrap uh, with a sort of black for about, I'd say, four, what's that, four fifths of the bottle. Nice apothecary bottle for a cocktail. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then the uh, lower half is uh, the name of the variety and color coded to specify that variety. And you have Ellis Old Fashioned. John Craven's holding honey sour. And I have. I have jackass, Ray. What is the jackass variety? <laughs> yeah, what what it exactly says my is name that? Bevnet Mike. Well, no, uh, ginger Mike. root bitters and lime. I'm keeping this. <laughs> okay, you can keep it. Uh, thanks so much to Josh Ellis, who is the founder of Withco and a loyal listener of Taste Radio. If you want to send us some products, we'll happily accept them. Please send them to Bevnet slash Taste Radio, 44 Pleasant Street, Suite 110, Watertown, Mass. 02472. Perhaps we'll chat about them in a future episode. When you're at Expo West, though, these are the aforementioned tips that I think we'd like to share a few of them. At least, Melissa, I know you have a bunch that you'd like to uh, chat about. 
I put together some tips. I've been on the brand side of a trade show and it is brutal. It is a really, really long time to be in a booth. So there are a few things that brands can do to mitigate some of the pain. Literal pain. (laughs) There is literal pain. So one of them is pretty obvious, but self-care. I mean, bringing food with you is always a good option. There's not a ton of food that you can, like real food that you can get at these shows. And if you depend on slices. As opposed to samples. Yeah. Like if if you're going to have your team eat slices of frozen pizza for lunch, they are going (laughs) to leave. So, So a lot of brands will bring their own food, bring water, water, not only for your team to have, but also to share with visitors who come for meetings and that kind of thing. But you know who does usually have a little bit of real food at their booth is Sir Kensington's. There's usually vegetables there. That's a good tip. (laughs) Sir Kensington's is definitely a good tip for uh, for people at the show. You miss vegetables at the show. They're not, they're few and far between, but you hit the Sir Kensington's booth, it feels like an oasis. Free vegetables? Yeah. So you can bring your own vegetables or you can go to the (laughs) Sir Kensington's booth. (laughs) Thank you, Mike. (laughs) Fun fact. Just in a little picnic basket full of vegetables. (laughs) Just hang. Getting out of the booth is really important. So not only so that you don't get booth fatigue, but also so you can check out your competition. And when you go to visit other booths, you can check out not only how they're showcasing product, but also how they're talking to people having clear roles and talking points for everybody at your booth. So the kinds of people who are going to come visit will vary. You'll have investors and Mm -hmm. retailers, media. So having clear matrix talking points for everybody. This is a really important point. You bring a lot of different kinds of people for different kinds of conversations. And you have to really think about what's that flow going to be like. And when the the dream retailer comes over, are you going to have them talk to, you know, a founder and a salesperson? Or are you going to have them talk to a marketing person first and get the whole backstory? You probably don't want to do that. You know, you have to figure out like who's going to have what kind of conversation. Making sure you know how to triage people who mm-hmm. are coming to your booth, who's assigned to talk to whom is really important. Yeah, those time wasters like BevNet Mike, you got to make sure. Just shuffle him to the side. <laughs> do you have any more vegetables? Push him aside. Just give him some vegetables. He'll be fine. I would like to TV test TV. your CBD's quality. <laughs> Um, create your own buzz. So in addition to the buzz that you have built by perhaps working with Nosh and Bevnet, when you're at the show, you never want to understaff your booth. When you walk down those aisles, you don't want to see a booth where there's one person on their laptop, you know, sitting down. Oh, that is a rookie, rookie move. Love those. On your laptop at the booth. Look at people, talk to people, be bright. If there are a bunch of people crowded around a booth, that's the booth that's going to get more attention. Mm -hmm. So making sure to build your own buzz at the show is really important. One that I think is really important is giving everybody respect who comes to the booth. People switch badges. They hide badges. You never know who knows whom. So even if it's not the person or the people that you were really, really hoping to talk to at the show, treat everyone with respect Mm -hmm. because you just never know. On that note, don't violently cough in your hand before you go to shake my hand. That was my next point. <laughs> Kindly. Oh, and no food prep in the restrooms. I always love those signs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, they, have a, they have a lot of those signs. It must have been a problem. Anyway. It is. Team huddles at various points throughout the, I was going to say the match, but throughout the event, especially like beginning of the day and end of the day to talk about the conversations that you're having, how you might want to tweak the pitches that you came in with, because you have to be ready to change the plan. That's another point. Having specific goals for the show, you can't stick to those goals if you're not constantly huddling and talking Mm -hmm. and adjusting as you go. That's a really good point. 
Well, so that was a lot of really good and concrete information. Thank you so much for sharing it. And uh, I'm sure our audience is going to be very happy that you did. My pleasure. And we wish everybody the best of luck. Drink that water. Drink that water. Eat those vegetables. We forgot one thing. <laughs> Follow our Instagram accounts if you yes, want to see what's absolutely. going on outside the show. Like if there is a little bit of a lull in traffic and you want to see what's going on, you can follow BevNet, Nosh.com. BevNet, BevNet Taste Mike, Radio. Uh, BevNet Taste Radio. You know. Don't let the show pass you by. Right. Exactly. Melissa, what's your Instagram handle again? Melissa underscore Traverse. There Woo-hoo. you go. And everyone knows BevNet Craven and BevTrade with a Y. <laughs> should i change it here's here's something all right i'm gonna ask our audience should i change my instagram handle to yes. bevnet ray or bevnet taste radio ray taste radio with a y Ooh, taste Ooh. radio no, <laughs> that, that's, that's like cheese with a that's, z don't laugh yeah, Nate. that's a bad idea <laughs> if anyone has any ideas or any suggestions on whether or not i should change my instagram handle just shoot me a note ask at tasteradio.com on that note i think it's time to get to our featured interview for this episode as I mentioned at the top of the show, Tommy Kelly and Salim Najjar are the co-founders of Sound Sparkling Tea, which debuted in 2015 and has been at the forefront of an emerging market for carbonated teas. Hailed by Bon Appetit magazine as the new LaCroix, Sound is known for its herbal, unsweetened, and organic iced teas, and also markets a line of tea-infused sparkling waters, which the company introduced in 2019. The products are primarily distributed in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic, and also available at several chain and independent retailers across the U.S. Nuclear engineers turned beverage entrepreneurs, Tommy and Slim admit that Sound's development has come with more than a few costly mistakes. And in the following interview, they discuss several of the pitfalls that in hindsight could have been avoided, why they view failures as lessons, how to stay lean while growing, and why corporate sales have been a boon for the brand. Hey, folks, it's Ray with Taste Radio. I'm here in Manhattan, New York. Can you say Manhattan, New York? Does that make sense? I, you say Brooklyn, New York. You say Staten Island, New York. Very rarely do you say Manhattan, New York. Yeah, you don't hear that often. You just hear New York. You just New York, hear New, New York. York. New yeah. York, New York. And the voices you just heard belong to Salim Najjar and Tommy Kelly, the co-founders of Sound Brands, the makers of Sound Sparkling Tea and Sound Sparkling Water. Gentlemen, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for having us. <laughs> Thanks for having us on. This is really fun for me because I first met you guys, I believe it was at an Expo East a long time ago when the brand was called Soterra. Uh, It's since obviously (laughs) been renamed Sound. Uh, And then I saw you guys again during the New Beverage Showdown at BevNet Live. What was that, four years ago? Yeah. Yeah, that was four four years ago. June 2016 or 15? I think it was, yeah. The amazing thing is we were Soterra for maybe six months. Yeah. And the originals all, all know it very well. Yeah, well, hey, I mean, (laughs) I remember because I really loved the taste of the brand. And what was weird is I think I loved the taste and remember the taste more than I remember the brand name, but I certainly remember the brand name now. That was four years ago, but to go back to the earliest days of sound, you'd have to go back to when you guys were working for a nuclear power plant. Is this right? That's right. Indian Point, owned by Entergy, up in uh, Peekskill, New York, about, it's about 40 miles, 50 miles north of the city. Powers most of New York City. Both yeah. of you engineers. Yeah, yeah. I was mechanical. My degree was mechanical. I was electrical and computer, but working mechanical there, working actually together there uh, under the same boss. That's how we met. Right at the end. At the end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We. Uh, that's kind of how we got there. We were in different groups. We worked our way to the same maybe eight person group, and then left within maybe a month of each other. Yeah. 
How long were you there at the company? I was there about five and a half years. Same with me, five and a half years, yeah. That's a long time to be at a nuclear power plant. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> I think to the layman, it sounds scary to work at a place like that. But to me, it, it feels a little bit more terrifying to be an entrepreneur in the beverage business. And what is it for you guys? <laughs> We've done both. And yeah, you're, uh, you're spot on. I mean, a nuclear power plant. And also, we sat in cubicles, mostly. Celine was in the plant a lot more than I was. But, but yeah, you're in an office, you're sitting things. at a computer. No, <laughs> What'd you say? I said it, that explains a few things. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry, Slim. No worries. No worries. Keep them coming. Keep them coming. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's like a, you're in there more, but I mean, it was like a clean basement. Right? There, there's so many safety factors built into it. Not the same with beverage entrepreneurship. There's less of a safety net? Yeah. I think in, in your learning on the fly, right? It's, uh, there's no roadmap. But there are operators in the, in the nuclear power plant that have been training for two years how to operate the plant in every scenario. For us, it's, you know, again, it's not a one size fits all. You can go to BevNet Live, you can read, you know, the Honesty book, all these different things, right? But when it's your product, it's go to market strategy. Everything else is, there's so much nuance to it. You can't just open the operating manual and say, you know, turn this knob. It's a lot less cut and dry. Absolutely. Uh, let's start from the beginning because the idea for sound actually came while you were working at the power plant. Tommy, it was your idea originally? Originally my idea. Salim helped me bring it to life for sure. But yeah, I was a sparkling water drinker. I drank hot tea for caffeine as well. I was drinking yerba mate and it was a summer day. I, you know, I remember sitting at my desk in the afternoon drinking a sparkling water and a hot tea, one for refreshment, one for caffeine. And I was surrounded by soda drinkers, people drinking caffeinated sodas. And I, I wanted that experience of a cold, crisp, carbonated beverage that was caffeinated, but obviously none of the ingredients that were in it. So thought, why can't I just carbonate tea? Um, and so went to, uh, I went to a tea Havana, I believe, bought some loose leaf tea that day. I went to Target and got a soda stream, brewed it, cooled, carbonated and said, okay, this exists. And then or this is possible rather. And then it was more figuring out like, why doesn't this exist? Has this been done before? And I was making it at home, bringing it into work as my caffeinated beverage of choice. And then, you know, bringing it in, Salim and I sitting in the same group. He was a very, very, you know, he's off, off scale high now on health fanatic, right? But, you know, so he, he obviously loved the product. And we also then started looking into more of the market, understanding the opportunity, and it expanded much beyond caffeine into you know more of a sparkling water alternative. So what was your interest in having Salim as a co-founder? What was your interest in working with Tommy as a co-founder of Sound? So my interest in working with Salim was, I mean, I know that I was working on it personally for maybe a year or so, just tinkering around. And when Salim started to come into the picture, things started to accelerate and get done more quickly. And he was obviously much more operationally minded, you know, more driven in that sense. And he's also uh, more energetic and a better salesperson than I am candidly. So, I mean, I think that our skill sets couldn't complement each other more, but we also, I think high level shared all the same values and had the same vision for the quality and, and where it was going and just wanting to, you know, self-improvement and wanting to be better every day. But when you get down to the details of who excels at what, it was, I think, a, per a perfect fit. 
Thank you for that. Thank you for that. And uh, yeah, I, I will definitely echo and, and agree that for me, health nut for sure. And I started diving in the power plant days down a path that was exploring that and really cutting out sugar from my diet um, at that time. And so I will never forget the day that Tommy brought in the sample for me to try. I mean, he had been talking about it for a while, brewing it at home, and I never got to try it. And I like to say it was just love at first sip when, when I took that. And I mean, Five and a half years is a long time at a power plant. From day one, I was trying to find my way out and getting my hands involved in the business world, taking MBA classes, but I didn't want to jump ship until it was I found something that I truly believed in and you know had passion for and could really see myself helping grow. And Tommy put together this incredible business plan that, I mean, now looking back on it, I, I'd, I'd laugh. It was 35 plus pages of just research and dedication. And I mean, it was very clear his mission for this product and what he wanted to do with it. And it resonated so well with me. And I was just like, this is somebody who sees the big picture, who will not waver from, you know, what he believes this brand can become. And it was a no-brainer for me to actually dump money and, and put in all my time to get it going. And uh, I think we do very much have a complementary skill sets, which I think is very important in a co-founder because we were friends as well. A lot of people say don't get into business with friends. So, I mean, it has, of course, been a roller coaster. And, you know, we do have our disagreements, but I think we, we balance each other out. And over the years, I think we can definitely say it's been so much more mutual respect for having that person check you. I mean, it's not always good to be high energy yes to everything. You need to think big picture, and Tommy is just that, a big picture thinker. So for all the research that you guys did on the category and this opportunity for a sparkling tea, you must have come across other sparkling tea brands that hadn't been very successful because sparkling tea has been around for a number of years what did you see as the opportunity? What did you see as the point of differentiation that sound could bring to the market that other brands didn't have, that consumers hadn't seen? Yeah, so I think you really, to understand how our product was different or how it was missing the mark for us as consumers at the time was, on the surface, if you looked at the product label, it said sparkling tea, right? But to understand why it wasn't successful is you you look at the ingredient panel and tea may have been the fourth or fifth ingredient. I think... That was the case for a lot of products that came to market that were almost a soda with tea in it being marketed as a sparkling tea. You also had on the other side a, a set of products that were more within the clean energy category that were sparkling and tea-based, but the carbonation level there was so low that it didn't really capture the same experience as you would with a sparkling water or soda product. So I think those are the two things, you know, the ingredients and the carbonation content are the two things that our product brought to market that had never been done before. And in terms of differentiation, I mean, just looking at the sparkling water market as a whole, we, we felt at that time very commoditized and a lot of products were coming out with stevia and erythritol. This was now five years ago, which never sat well with us, always gave us a headache. And then also this natural flavor, which just by definition in our industry is ambiguous. And I think over the years, we've seen that with a lot of, you know, the news and some of the, the legal aspects around that. So uh, for us, that was really our biggest differentiator, kind of sticking true to using, you know, only tea or um, extracts as our ingredient, being transparent. So as I mentioned, it was originally called Soterra, even for a short amount of time and eventually became Sound. Where did the brand name come from? Soterra was Tommy's idea, and <laughs> that was really just Saad, short for sewed 
Terra Latin of the Earth, so Soda of the Earth. Mm -hmm. Then we got into some legal matters with that name, which uh, at the time, obviously, we were not thrilled about because we had dumped a lot of our own money into producing this product. And all the labels. And And all all the labels. And it was the first production run, so minimums. And we actually got that product into a Whole Foods. So we, I mean, we were, you know, we thought that was great. And so when that that lawsuit came, we were not thrilled having to change the name, but we're forced to just from a financial standpoint. So it was really a blessing in disguise, right? If, if you take a look back now, you know, we, we're thankful that that happened. And it took a long time to come up with uh, with this name. There was a lot of back and forth, a lot of polling family and friends, but uh, the name sound comes from sound as an adjective. So sound body, sound mind, sound ingredients, sound mission, sound company, really a descriptor for what's in the product, but more importantly, what we're trying to build from a platform and uh, from a brand standpoint. Yeah, and I think it was actually valuable to get to where we are with the brand name. I couldn't have been done right out of the gate without really having brought a product to market previously because... I think being two outsiders to the industry, we started to, as Salim was saying, understand more about the natural flavors. And we said, hey, we're creating this product. It's white tea with peach and ginger. And you'd be getting the spec sheets from the supplier and it would be peach flavor. And that was it. And so I think we started to realize just, you know, how much ambiguity there was in a lot of ready to drink beverages. And everyone was throwing in stevia erythritol. So so sound ingredients and twofold about the mission, right? We, we That also inspires how we get involved in, you know, like a New York City nonprofit wellness in the schools and helping educate youth. And it's all about really our mission is related to obesity and helping people drink less sugar. So sound ties into all of those. The first year of entrepreneurship, from what I understand, is very, very difficult. It's also when most people fail. I think in the beverage industry... Uh, there's about a 92% failure rate within the first year. And then out of the 8% that are still left after that first year, I think it's only 10% of those make it on to the next year. What was your first year like? How'd you make it through? How many times did you want to quit? It's <laughs> <laughs> um, a very leading yeah, question. Yeah, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say that honestly, like the first year, I don't know that we wanted to quit. I mean, I, I don't, I know that I'll speak for myself, but I know your personality is the case and, I think that also too, maybe being engineers, we were inherently curious and it was bumps in the road were more, how do we solve this rather than like, okay, this is it. So I think it was just a lot of learning really about the challenges of just the vernacular of the industry, mm-hmm. right? We were smart people. I think, you know, we're by degree, right? We're, on, we're smart on paper, but you come into the industry and you're talking about, you know, the difference between an MCB and an OI, like what? I, I don't know what's a TPR. What's a broker? How does a broker operate versus a merchandiser? When do you need a broker? There's different types of brokers. So I I think that was really the first year was just a crash course on how does the industry work? And I think we probably should have spoken to more people within the industry. We're a little bit siloed in that sense. But yeah, to me, that was kind of my memories of the first year, uh, learning things the hard way that way, outsourcing, listening to consultants rather than, you know, diving in headfirst and saying, you know, we're going to solve this ourselves, uh, which we did, you know, probably three to four months into it and things turned around very quickly. Yeah. And I I mean, I will echo that. I I remember the first year, I'd probably classify it as a bunch of failures, right? 
I mean, from spending way too much money on an initial product with the labels and producing it to spending way too much money on an outsourced sales team when you shouldn't even be in the store. But I don't really think a failure is a failure when you're an entrepreneur. When you're an entrepreneur, a failure really is a lesson if looked at properly and you don't do it again, right? So we had plenty of those, and I think those all led us to where we are. And a perfect example, the one that we touched on is, you know, our name and having to change the name. And most people could look at that as a failure, but that really led us to a lot of our, our current strategy in terms of spending money now and how lean we are and, and, you know, ensuring that whatever we are spending our money is focused on our goal and, and building our brand rather than just what necessarily other people are saying. This other people term that you both have mentioned one in a good light, as in, Tommy, when you said, listen to other people who have been there, done that, versus other people, Celine, that you mentioned, I'm assuming the consultants that Tommy was referring to. <laughs> Tell me about the impact of consultants and what they bring to the table. And Because this is an important question. I think there's a lot of people out there in our industry who say, okay, I can help you. I can guide you. I've been doing this for a long time. But it's certainly not a one-size-fits-all approach. And sometimes the advice works for one brand, but definitely not for another. I think that, you know, the, the key thing is knowing how to use them, right? How to work with them, right? If you hire a broker and you start paying them five to $10,000 a month and you don't know what your strategy is for go-to-market, which change you're going after, you don't have the bandwidth to manage them and, and talk to them weekly or daily, whatever it might be then there's no sense in hiring that service provider. There's, there's a benefit to it, but I also think you need to have the knowledge base and the strategy and the team bandwidth behind that and, and the budget too, right? A lot of times there's no sense in selling into these large chain accounts if you don't have the budget for sales and marketing behind it. So I think that's probably you know what Celine was saying early on is we didn't spend enough time learning about what is our brand positioning, what makes us different, uh, what's our value proposition, and started working with service providers without knowing how we wanted to direct them. So when you start doing that, that's a good way to spend money inefficiently very quickly. How did you know you were on the right track, though? I mean, at, at a certain point, you can say, okay, well, we failed a lot, but it makes sense to keep going regardless because we, we are on to something. You know, what was it that gave you confidence that this could be a successful brand, that you would have some traction going forward after that first year? So there's a lot, you question yourself a lot in terms of, you know, is this something that, that can be successful when you get, when you have all those failures. But I think, you know, our belief in the product and just really our brand and what we were trying to bring to the market and objectively healthy, unsweetened, sparkling beverage and, and the need for it out there. And just, you know, for ourselves, for our own network of family and friends, um, that's been, I'd say the driving factor to this point, really. Yeah, and I would add too, because in the early days, Salim and I were doing all the demos at Whole Foods and these stores. And as you said, you love the taste of the product, the name and design and all of that left much to be desired at the time. But there's no way that standing behind a demo table and the person tries it for the first time and they, they love it, right? It's like nothing they've ever tried before. Those sort of things are, they keep you moving, right? You, you have these bumps in the road and then that's the thing that says, there's something here. It's not a failure. It's just not on the right track just yet. It was just you guys doing demos for a long time. How long were you guys the only employees of the company? 
it was the first three years, really, three, three and a half years. It was the two of us, a lot of obviously outsourced help, which was was needed. But after that first year of those failures and spending a lot of money on those failures, we realized that, you know what, we, we need to take a step back. We need to really figure out what our brand is, who we are, how we want to present ourselves in the market. So it was just a lot of, uh, a lot of that for the first three years. And rate in costs, it sounds like. Yes. Some of those costs are... Your salaries. Did you take a salary those first three years? <laughs> uh, are we still taking a salary? <laughs> what, um, we, we, we took what we needed to survive. I wouldn't even say survive. We, we took what we needed to get by and yeah. Those first three years were, I think, so necessary, again, as being outsiders to learn about the things we were just talking about and being the ones at the table with UNFI or the DSD and getting the questions on, you know, what's your hip pocket deal? I don't know. What's a hip pocket <laughs> deal, right? So like, how can you deploy a sales rep when you don't even know to tell them what to say? So it was like, you know, we talk about like, you know, hiring someone earlier would have been the right move because it frees you up as a founder to do bigger picture thinking and all of these things that founders are supposed to be doing, right? But I think too, we had to learn. We learned everything oh, during yeah. that time, which is, you know, now at a point where we have a team, we actually can speak uh speak the language who was your first hire uh, i was actually salim's cousin <laughs> george you know he's he's amazing he uh we needed someone again to manage our dsd distributor uh in new york and you know just hustling up and down the street someone that was young and energetic and lebanese ideally you know <laughs> <laughs> knows how to sell yeah yeah really, exactly he, he was I mean, he's been with the pro, seen the product since inception, just being my cousin and, um, you know, watching it grow and always was, was interested. And, in, um, and so really just made perfect sense. Someone who we knew we can trust to be out there and not just do a nine to five, you know, but do what it was going to take, which was desperately needed. Yeah. And I mean, you know, in New York city, up and down the street sales, you can't, you have to have a person in these stores every single day. Um, and he was doing things for us, like, making deliveries for a marketing event, you know, whatever it took, he was doing it. So he was learning a lot that he was doing a very wide spectrum of things as you would hope for as an entrepreneur making your first hire, you know, he kind of did whatever was needed. It's one thing to get on shelf. And if you go up and down the street, you'll find a handful of bodegas. You might find a hundred bodegas. that will take your product. It's another thing to stay on shelf, right? What's been the strategy? What's been your retail strategy? Not just for getting distribution, but getting turn, getting pull. I, it's definitely evolved recently. And Salim, you know, can speak to, you know, our, our other channel strategy here, but just New York DSD specifically, as you said, getting on the shelf is easy, more or less. If you have product and you have a budget to deploy, you can make the case and you don't need to get paid for it. You get on every, every shelf you want. What do you mean by that? Well, in going in and taking free product, most stores will do it. Free fill, right? Things, other terms we learned fairly so, quickly. <laughs> so for folks who aren't familiar with free fills, you know, what's the upside of doing a free fill in a bodega in New York City? The upside is it gets your product on the shelf. I mean, now what we shoot for is more of a buy one, get one free deal as an intro or something where, you know, even less aggressive, but where the store is actually purchasing a case, right? Because what we came to find out on a free fill, especially when you're an unknown brand and you don't have a person in the stores checking in on it, you may give a free fill today and it may still be in back stock collecting dust next month. So that's the challenge with a free fill. But the upside, the opportunity is generally as a young brand with no track record, 
a lot of these accounts require it. You know, so obviously Whole Foods and, and accounts like that that also ask for a free fill will put your product on the shelf. It's more challenging up and down the street. But yeah, that's why you do a free fill. Get the product on the shelf as a young brand. When you started to see people drinking the product, what were they saying about it? Because, you know, I have a perspective and I'm a unique customer because I have some beverage industry experience. I know, you know, what you guys were talking about, what's in the product versus what shouldn't be in the product or what I wouldn't drink in, in, the, in a product like that. What was resonating most, most with consumers and how did you end up getting that right on the front of the package? Because you've gone through a few different rebrands. Yeah, I mean, I think as Tommy was saying, it was very important for us to do all those whole food demos to start because we got to see that feedback firsthand. And I mean, I remember I'd say the two biggest things that uh, that we'd hear was, wow, this is very clean. And there's like no aftertaste or no lingering taste or no like chemical taste, which was one of the biggest reasons, um, you know, why we created it. A, a natural flavor gives because of it, by definition, it, it could be, you know, several other sub-ingredients in that natural flavor. You don't necessarily get a clean palate or a clean back-end taste. So clean, I'd say, is is one of the things we heard most. Uh, yeah, I think beyond that, too, it was, you hear a lot of people say, I've never tasted anything like this before. And I think that catering to a sparkling water consumer, they were very much conditioned, even if there were 50 different brands, to be drinking lemon to be drinking raspberry lime, right? And so when we started bringing out rose tea with lime and cardamom, these palates that were accustomed to drinking things a bit more thoughtfully crafted, we, we were, they were pleasantly surprised. Um, so I think from a flavor profile perspective, and that's really, those two things are really what drive our strategy now today still is ingredients, ingredient quality, as Celine was saying, and, and ingredient thoughtfulness and the thoughtfulness of the flavor profiles. You probably heard a lot of feedback as well from your corporate sales. Talk a bit about that corporate strategy because it is it seems like it's pretty key to trial and perhaps a pretty good source of revenue. Yeah, I mean, so... Salim just lit up. Yeah. <laughs> my turn, my turn. Um, so the product was conceived in a corporate account, right? That's when Tommy came up with the idea. And after that first year or first three to six months of really quote unquote the failures and spending a lot of money to get in retail and you know to pay to play that they say in retail and realizing that okay like you said it's one thing to get your product on a shelf you're spending a lot of money on the back end to demo it to merchandise in it to make sure you know that it's selling in there and we had a lot of friends that were working in these you know high-end tech startup companies like the facebook's the google's that have what's known as pantry offering and pantry is uh is really free an unlimited supply of free beverages and snacks for their employees and that market in the u.s is a five billion dollar and growing market alone so for us looking at that pantry channel and realizing the economics of it were far greater than those in the retail channel um and actually you know you could get a path to profitability in that channel because you're not spending anything on the back end right because the end customer who is in fact our target customer anybody that is in a facebook working there is someone we'd want the product in our hands they're getting it for free you don't need to convince them to buy it off of a whole food shelf so it's a brand building channel which is really what we want to do, build our brand. And because you cut out a layer of the pie in terms of distribution, right? Typically, and this is all stuff we had to learn as we went, but typically we sell to a distributor, they sell to Whole Foods, Whole Foods sells to you. 
In this case, you sell to a corporate distributor, they'll sell to the Facebook or LinkedIn, and your end customer gets it for free. So after our learnings in that first year and realizing, hey, we need to be a lot more lean in our spending, but we still want to build our brand and grow the top line, uh, we quickly shifted and decided, you know, let's take a, a mile deep inch wide approach in retail focus really just here on New York. It's not about the number of doors. It's about the velocity in the doors and the turns, but let's, let's really see what we can push in this corporate channel to build a brand because we don't need to spend as much and you're getting your product in the perfect customer. Did you have a sense of how much of your business you wanted at traditional retail versus corporate? When we started, no, but since then, and, and, and looking now a couple of years in corporate and just seeing how it's played out, that's how we base our strategy. That's how we base our model. And we do see that, you know, shifting over time. But right now, just because of the economics and the spend in corporate, it's, it's a bigger, a much bigger piece of our, of our pie right now. Well, we always say this, like we're fighting it up and down the street in these bodegas to get a 3K sale. And all of a sudden, LinkedIn's order 600 cases you know, your philosophy can change pretty quickly when that starts to happen. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about in terms of don't hire a broker until you have the right budget behind it to support your sales and marketing growth, right? So we haven't been doing things like that, but knowing the traction that we're starting to get and we're getting market pull and, you know, you talk about free fills and you're constantly giving out free fills early on, like we never give out free fills now unless it's to a larger you know chain account, but up and down the street, you're starting to get more market pull. People are reaching out to you. And I mean, I think that's more of a gut type thing, but we're starting to hit an inflection point now where we were a bit ahead of the category, you know, in terms of sparkling tea. And now the category is starting to mature. And we have a lot of other brands now educating consumers on what is sparkling tea? What are these sparkling water alternatives, right? They know what to expect. There's now almost a, an alternative sparkling set within stores which is incredibly helpful for us. I've seen your product in a lot of places, most notably at Whole Foods in my neck of the woods. Again, it's a big win when you can get on shelf, you know, particularly to a place like Whole Foods, given the volume that they do, given the visibility, given that you're aligning with what a Whole Foods represents. What's that like working with a retailer to determine the right merchandising strategy, the right pricing strategy, the right promotion strategy, because all those things are really important to staying on shelf once you're there. Yeah, I think, I mean, we've definitely had instances where we've gone into stores thinking it's going to be a win and we were discontinued, right? And I mean, from our wins and our losses, you know, the biggest differentiator is how much attention you pay to them and how much buy-in you're also getting from the retailer, right? How excited are they to bring you in? Uh, if you're forcing it in and you end up on the bottom shelf in the ambient aisle, right? That's, that's not going to be a huge win for anybody if you don't have buy-in from the store. So I, I think it's a combination of both sensing how much excitement and buy-in you're getting from the, the store that's bringing you in. And also, as you said, having promotional calendars set up, being able to support them through demos, supporting through targeted events and sampling within the area, you want to grow into new chains. And it's super exciting to say, this chain wants to bring me in in Texas. This chain wants to, you know, we can, we have an opportunity to go to the Pacific Northwest. We have, you know, no placement there. We, people are emailing about it. Let's go. But if, again, going back to budget and resources, you're just setting yourself up for an initial free fill, limited reorders. You're probably going to spend money on some demos and merchandising, but it's not enough, not going to be enough to build the momentum 
So that's where we've become super thoughtful on retail growth and being, as Salim said, inch wide, mile deep, because you, you need to have support and you need to have the firepower behind it. That's how you stay on shelf. And that's why retail is the most critical channel long term. Uh, that's where most people are buying beverages in grocery and convenience, but it's also the most expensive. So that ties obviously back to our growth strategy by channel. So five plus years in, chipping away, looking at the opportunity that's ahead of you. But let's look back for a sec. What's the one thing you'd change if you could? It would be to not have been so hard on ourselves during those difficult times. The mental stress and grind of being an entrepreneur, especially in the CPG industry, is grueling. And stress is, at a cellular level, the root of all disease and death outside of accidents. So looking back on the past five years and all those stressful times, a lot of it was self-induced and based on our own internal expectations. So if you were to just take a step back during those difficult times and kind of accept the reality of your situation and look at it from a different lens, you find, like we were talking about, really that stressful or failure moment is, is a lesson, right? And I'm a big believer in reality is created by our minds, by our perception. So if you can continue having a positive outlook, a positive perspective, putting out that good energy, it's crazy how the universe just takes that and gives that positive energy right back to you and things unfold the way they should. And that failure was not a failure. Tommy? Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree, you know, with Salim in terms of when you're in it, you're in the weeds and you're doing everything, every little document that needs to be reviewed and signed, whatever it might be, you know, a document from a distributor needs to get reviewed and signed and it's going to be a day late. And it's like, oh, you know, we're going to miss our opportunity to launch next week. And I say with like taking a longer term look at, you know, a, a really high level perspective and, and zooming out and saying, I think if we said, all right, we're in this for 20 years, right? You know, you're going to be in this for 20 years. The amount of stress that you would put yourself under to make certain decisions, whether it's related to launching at a new chain or, you know, even we talk about the brand a lot early on and, and rather than going to market out of the gate because we felt like we needed to be first to market, just taking a step back and taking more time to invest into what is the brand, where does it fit into customers' lives, being really thoughtful about that before just rushing to, to jump into things. Um, I think early on we did have a little bit of a, a sped up mentality. Salim approach. The Salim approach. <laughs> well said. And well said throughout this conversation. Guys, I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to sit down with you. You know, I've been a big fan of sound. I'm not going to sound very objective here uh, for a long time. <laughs> we'll take and, it. And uh, I think you make an outstanding product. And I'm really excited to see how the next five years unfolds for the company and for you guys personally. So thanks so much again for the time. And uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks, Ray. Thanks for having us, Ray. All right. That brings us to the end of episode 74 of Taste Radio Insider. Thank you so much for listening, and thanks to our guests, Tommy Kelly and Salim Mijar. Please subscribe to Taste Radio on the Apple Podcasts app, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Play. As always, for questions, comments, ideas for future podcasts, please send us an email to ask at tasteradio.com. On behalf of the entire Taste Radio team, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.